The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debates. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today, my guest on Off the Shelf is Jason Merkmaster. Jason is a member at Miller Chevalier, law firm here in Washington, D.C. Jason focuses on government contracts. Um, Jason, first of all, welcome to the show. It's been a while. Yeah, it's good to be back. Thank you for having me, Roger. Um, and we've got a lot to tackle today. I know we're going to talk about the NDAA and then this Raytheon case, but um, let's start with the case that impacts basically the interpretation of commercial item contracting clause language, critical language yeah. about costs and or just how you track that i mean i think it's something that every company that does commercial item contracting needs to be aware of and and definitely the potential implications are big so jason take it away tell us about this case sure so it's so the the case is the aclr case and just right out of the box i you know i want to note you know that we on behalf of the coalition have put in an amicus brief in this case so the case is currently at the u.s court of appeals for the federal circuit, uh, which, you know, think of that, you know, court as essentially the Supreme Court of government contracts, because the actual U.S. Supreme Court very rarely take government contracts cases. So we're in this case started at the Court of Federal Claims. You know, it's a commercial item contractor, you know, on the schedule. You know, they had a GSA schedule contract. You know, the schedules program is one of the government's principal vehicles. Uh, commercial for purchasing commercial products and commercial services. Uh, you know, those are defined terms in the federal acquisition regulation, you know, and, and of course the concept behind it, this is going back now, Roger, you know, it's all, almost 30 years now since FASA, you know, the federal acquisition streamlining act, you know, which in the early Clinton administration was enacted, you know, the concept was, Hey, we, the government, we want to leverage, you know, what's happening in the commercial marketplace make it easier, faster, cheaper uh, to right. uh, access the commercial market. And so, you know, following that, you know, we had a whole new part of the FAR was promulgated, FAR Part 12, to deal with commercial item uh, acquisition. And we came out of that, we got a, a, a clause uh, that, you know, sets forth, it's in the FAR, it's been there a long time now, to set forth the standard, you know, terms and conditions under which the government purchases you go back 28 years, 19, the Federal Acquisition Streamlining Act of 1994 and yeah. created commercial item contracting. And I can tell you the, the impact it had on procurement at that time was profound. We went from like all everything being specced out and industries that were only focused on building the government ashtray to spec, you know, to basically opening up the entire commercial market, you know, for purchases by the government buyer. Um, so it had profound implications in terms of efficiency, I think, value and competition. And um, to the extent case law is backtracking on that, that's a big deal. Can you talk about some of the yeah. particulars of the case? Yeah, what so happened, this case how involved, we got to so the, this absolutely. So this case involves a particular provision in that set of basic terms and conditions of government commercial item acquisition. And it's the termination for convenience provision. 
So 52.212-4L, if you want to go look it up in the FAR. You know, and what that provision says, you know, terminations for convenience are a very kind of you know, uncommercial kind of thing, right? Where you have a party, one party that can say, hey, we're ending this agreement, we're backing away from it. And of course, you know, but it's a standard right of the government. And you know, that particular provision says that you know, if you get terminated, if you're a commercial item contractor, you get terminated for convenience, you can recover a percentage of completion applied against the price, and you can, uh, you can recover what are called your reasonable charges that you can demonstrate to the government satisfaction using your, you're using the contractors, and this is the magic language, standard record keeping system, all right? So this case, the ACLR case, schedule contractor, they get an order from CMS, contract, their order gets terminated for convenience. They go to try to recover, uh, eventually have lots of litigation, bunch of other issues in the case, but one of the issues in the case is, can they recover their reasonable charges um, uh, pursuant to this provision? So this is litigated at the Court of Federal Claims, which sits underneath the federal circuit where the case is now. And the Court of Federal Claims in a decision last November said, ACLR, you cannot recover because you know, we don't think that you have, what, what you have is your accounting system. They use QuickBooks, they put in a declaration from the president that had this explanation of their accounting system. They had used some estimates because, you know, a lot like a lot of contractors, you know, the folks working at the company, they don't keep track of their time. They're, they're not lawyers. They're not billing their time, you know, tracking their time in tenths of an hour. So they had to put together some estimates of, okay, here's how much time we spent on the contract. Here's our hourly rate. Here's what we should recover. And the court said, that's not good enough. That is not, that does not rise to the level of what the court considered to be a standard record keeping system. And what the court relied upon in reaching that conclusion, they went to the dictionary and they said, well, the, here's the definition of the word standard. Here's the definition of the word system. And this just doesn't sound standard enough. This doesn't sound systematic enough. And so you, you commercial item contractor, in order to recover this, uh, you know, these costs, you know, including the, the time that was the employees spent working on the contract, well, you should have been tracking your time in real time. Uh, and you can't rely on these, you know, these after-the-fact estimates. And so the contractors, are, the Court of Federal Claims has determined the contractor's recovery is zero, which is a big deal, uh, because what it would mean, you know, if that decision is is left to, is left to stand, you know, what that would mean is that for commercial item contractors doing business with the government, and you know, kind of thinking ahead, hey, what if I get terminated for convenience? How do I protect myself? How do I make sure that I can recover my cost? It means they would have to, you know, oh my goodness, do I have to go out and, you know, invest in Deltac? Do I need to be worried about these awful things called the cost accounting standards? All that stuff. Yeah, it just, it sounded to me like at the end of the day, tracking all those things would essentially turn a commercial item contract into a cost reimbursement contract in a lot of ways, right? If you're going to do that as a sort of defensive slash preparatory measure in case something does happen on the contract, and that would increase costs actually to the government customer at the end of the day, right? Somebody's going to pay for all that record keeping too. Is that fair? Absolutely. You'd have to bake all of that into your pricing. And, 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 and you know, so this case has now gone up to the, the federal circuit, which is, you know, now, now where it is, it's, it's, it's in the middle of, you know, middle of being briefed. Uh, and that's, you know, the, the brief that we've just put in uh, this week. You know, so the court focused on this, you know, so well, it's, this isn't a standard record keeping system. Well, the, the, the thing that's important is that the very next sentence of that clause says, oh, and you know, in a commercial item termination, you're not going to be subject, you're not going to have to comply with the cost accounting standards. You're not going to have to comply 
with the cost principles that are set forth in FAR Part 31. You don't have to be, you don't have to undergo an audit. And what the Court of Federal Claims did, and this is the basic point of our brief, is that it did not take into account the rest of that language. And that's critically important for determining what is, you know, what is a standard record keeping system. Yeah, well, it sounds to me like they essentially revised the clause by judicial fiat in a certain sense, right? They read language out of the clause that was that was there. And it is a big deal. Um, you know, can't underestimate or overestimate the impact of it when you start thinking about what people what their obligations to themselves are to protect themselves when they're doing business with the government, which is, you know, not really the intent of commercial item contracting. And just to go back to emphasize thing, they were using essentially standard commercial practices, weren't they? Using QuickBooks, you mentioned some of the stuff that they were doing, right? Yeah, so what, what every commercial item contractor of some sort would be using, right? Absolutely. That you know, and they put in an ex, you know fairly extensive you know sworn statement uh, from a company executive. To, you know, we use QuickBooks, and we have these files, and we you know, of course, you know, things feed into QuickBooks, and you know, not, it's, right. it's not as if I mean that's just a reality of of any contractor especially a commercial item contract. Right. And QuickBooks does create a record. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the other thing, critical thing is in FAR, I mentioned FAR Part 12 earlier. If you go over to FAR Part 12, FAR Part 12 says, you know, in demonstrating reasonable charges, the contractor may use its standard record keeping system. And there's case law out there. There's existing case law, which the Court of Federal Claims didn't even address, that says, like, look, even if it doesn't come out, yeah, that's a permissive. You can use right. your standard record keeping system, but if you have other data right. that demonstrates your costs, that's okay too. So, I mean, this you know, we we are hopeful that you know the federal circuit uh, will fix this problem because if they don't, it could affect because even in even in non Roger even in non commercial contracts with the government, right, you can rely on estimates for your cost. So the sure. notion that you can't do that in a termination is just contrary to, you know, literally decades of settled law. It's almost like the plain reading of the clause in its entirety, you know, has been ignored, you know, in favor of, you know, Webster's Dictionary for two words or whatever. I mean, that's, it, that, that's, that, that's exactly, that's exactly what happened. And we're, and again, we're just, we're, we're hopeful that, uh, you know, you know, we're in the middle of the briefing. There's going to, the government starts to file its brief. There'll be another brief from the, the contractor after that, and then oral argument later in the year. But, you know, I would expect that, you know, here we are in February. I would I would expect by the end of this year, you know, we'll be seeing a decision. From the I, I'm curious about one last thing, then we're going to have to take a break. But did the government argue that it was a non-standard record keeping? Is that how this got to the judge or did they just? The judge raised this issue uh, on her own. So, okay. you know, in, in, you know, any, you know, I've been in, you know, I've been in those cases. It's always makes you, uh, you know, and, and look, I get it. You know, judges want to feel like, you know, that they're reaching regardless of how, what the government or the contractors arguing, they want to feel they're reaching the right, right result. I get that. But every time, you know, as, as a litigator, anytime the judge is injecting, well, how about this guys, what do you think about this? It, it makes me nervous because it's, it's, you know, they're, they're, they're stepping into like almost litigating the case themselves instead of those kind of, keeping to that umpire type role. Right. There is something piqued her interest to, to focus on that. That's a great uh, background on that case. And definitely, you know, we'll be following it moving forward. Um, and it, ha it will have significant implications, either positive or negative, you know, depending on the outcome for commercial item contracting. It's almost like making policy 
you know, through yep. the courts, right, at the end of the day, yep. when that should be left to, you know, to the executive branch, you know, through public rulemaking in a certain sense at the end of the day. Um, okay, uh, Jason, when we come back, let's talk about the NDAA and some of the key provisions from a legal perspective. Uh, okay. My guest today is Jason Workmaster. He is a member at Miller Chevalier. I'm Roger Walder, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. My guest today is Jason Workmaster. He's a member at Miller Chevalier. And uh, last segment, we uh, dissected the ALCR case. Is that right? The, you know, the um, ACLR, yep. yep. ACLR, okay. I get the L in the wrong place the first, uh, the first time, but which will have significant implications for commercial item contractors and I think for the government by again, increasing cost to the government over time, as well as um, potentially making folks think twice about entering the market via commercial item contracts. So, um, you know, the implications are big and we'll be following that. But uh, this segment, well, of course, it's always big implications when you start talking about the National Defense Authorization Act. And I know you have a few sections you want to highlight, you know, and provide some of your some legal perspective on. Uh, so, sure. Jason, I'm going to turn it over to you. Like, with, what one do you want to start with first? Oh, let's you know, let's start let's start with everybody's favorite topic, which is inflation. So, you know, there's no, the, that's not there's... everybody's favorite topic. Now, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's a, it's their one that they're forced to talk about, right? At the end of the yeah. day. not one that we want to talk about, but right, one right, that we right. need to talk about. Exactly. Uh, uh, and and hope, hopefully, you know, hopefully that uh, some of this conversation gets uh, just resolved by inflation coming down. But uh, in the NDAA, this this you know the, the and for you know folks, I'm sure are familiar. Every year, Congress passes the National Defense Authorization Act. If, if Congress does nothing else, they will pass that one act per year uh, to authorize uh, uh, defense spending. Um, and in, included in that uh, piece of legislation every year is always, there are always provisions that affect government contractors. Uh, you know, and just as a high level thing, whenever the NDAA comes out, you know, if you're a contractor, you want to go to Title VIII at least. But there's this year, there's some provisions, some other parts of it that are very important, but Title VIII especially relates to government procurement. And so this year, you know, there is a section, uh, Section 822, uh, that addresses uh, inflation. And if you've been kind of tracking, you know, I know, Roger, you know, at the last uh, conference, uh, you know, we talked about, you know, GSAs put out guidance on inflation, DODs put out guidance on inflation. The, the GSA guidance, in my view, is a little bit more helpful. GSA had some more tools at its disposal, to be fair, uh, than DOD uh, had. You know, what we were hearing from DOD, Pretty much, well, a fixed price contract is a fixed price, you know, and, and, you know, where this hits the road for folks is, you know, you have a fixed price contract where you're only entitled to be paid so much, you know, you're, you're delivering the computer system, you're going to be paid a million bucks for it. Well, my God, my costs have, you know, greatly escalated, you know, and I'm losing my shirt because of inflation, you know, how can I get relief? And, you know, what we heard mostly from DOD was, well, a fixed price contract is a fixed price contract, and unless you have an economic price adjustment clause, you're going to be stuck. So yeah. Congress has now passed, you know, a, a Section 822, the NDAA, uh, which gives um, uh, some temporary authority uh, through the end of this year. So through December 31st, uh, 2023, for extraordinary relief due to inflation. And they've baked this, Roger, into an existing statute. And you'll hear folks talk about Public Law 85804. Which we were talking about public law 85804 even before this section of the NDA came out as a possible vehicle 
for getting relief uh, due to the impact of inflation. Because that provision, uh, extraordinary relief, does allow the government to give you more money without getting something in return, which in you know, legal parlance we call consideration. Right? So Public Law 85804 allows the government to simply put more money, give, give more money to a contractor um, and without getting uh, anything uh, in exchange. And so this temporary authority, like I said, is supposed to, it, it, it expires at the end of the year. And you know, before everybody gets too excited about it, uh, you know, it requires an appropriation and that you have to demonstrate that the cost is greater than the price, not just that you're incurring more cost, all right? It's gotta be that the cost is greater than the price. And so you're gonna lose, you know, you're really gonna lose your shirt. So I guess that's how they define extraordinary. Uh, is, yes, and you have to show that it's due solely to inflation. So it's, you know, it's pretty cabined, all right? So it's it's not a free-for-all. And so, you know, the the legal advice would be, if you're going to go, if this is like any time you're going into the government, you know, from my perspective, we are asking for relief, whether it's under the changes clause or anywhere else, you're going to want to have your case ready to go to demonstrate to the government this resulted solely from inflation, and it's, you know, here's my cost, and they're over my price. And this, this will extend down. This is for prime contractors. It also extends down to subs. The tricky thing there, I think, from, a, from uh, both a legal and a practical perspective, you know, this makes me think, Roger, of like, like TINA disclosures. When you have a subcontractor that's having to make a cost of pricing disclosure up to the government, most subs don't want to submit that data to their prime, right? They right. want to submit it straight to the government. So what we expect to see, and we, we expect to see guidance coming out uh, from uh, DOD. Uh, they're supposed to issue guidance uh, by toward the end of uh, March. Uh, what I expect we'll see with respect to subs is some kind of process that's, that's put in place where the subs can make their submissions straight to the Defense Department without having so, to submit through the, through the prime. So when you say there has to, there has to be an appropriation, is it an appropriation – for that particular program, or is it appropriation that acknowledges inflation in some manner it, or form? The exact level of detail on that, Roger, I'm not entirely sure. It should be that, you know, as long as it's as clear as an appropriation that is earmarked to take care of an inflation issue, I would think that should be enough. It doesn't have, because, I mean, once once that's done, it should be a matter of kind of sub-appropriation down through the bureaucracy. Uh, it shouldn't take more from Congress other than say this, you know, we've put this in here for, you know, to cover inflation by X, XYZ agency. So would you say it's, would it be fair to say Congress giveth and Congress taketh away in one position uh, here? Sort as of they often, <laughs> as they often do. As they, I mean, one, one thing that is good about this, that, and this isn't limited just, just to the inflation scenario, they have increased from $50,000 to $500,000 where the, the contracting officer, you know, within the agency, you know, has to go and seek approval. So the approval threshold is now much higher. They, you know, the, the, the lower level folks have more authority now under public law 85804 in general okay, uh, than they did thing. before. So that's a good thing. And, and also congressional notification because, you know, when, when this extraordinary relief has been given in the past under 80, again, this applies to 85804 relief in general. It used to be that if they were, if they gave out more than twenty five million dollars, they had to send a co- report to Congress. That's been increased to one hundred and fifty million. You know, in general, and again, this isn't just related to inflation. Those thresholds going up is a good thing for contractors. All right. So another section. We got a couple minutes left in this segment. Sure. Let's pick another one. 
Well, we could start in on the prohibition on uh, uh, semiconductor products and services, which is, you know, I, I mentioned Title VIII. This one's actually outside of Title VIII this year. This is uh, Section 5949. This is another don't buy from China provision, essentially, this is right? Another don't, this is another don't buy from China provision. So if you've been if you've been involved in government contracts for a while, you know, the last five years at least, you know that, you know, just a few years ago, I think it was the 2019 NDAA, got a lot of, what was it, 15, I think it was 2019, you know, there was a lot of uh, hoopla over what was Section 889. And you'll still, you'll still hear people talking about Section 889, which put in place a prohibition first on the government's ability to buy certain Chinese telecom. And then, in a, that was Part A, which went into effect first. And then there was a Part B, which went into effect a year later, which said, not only aren't we going to buy this certain Chinese telecom, we're not going to enter into contracts with entities that use it. So, you know, that was Part B, which is a much broader prohibition. This new 50, so this is Section 5949, so we're not in Title A, we're, this is Section 5949 of the new NDAA, is this very similar type of prohibition. And it prohibits, uh, instead of being addressed to telecom, it is addressed uh, to semiconductor products or services uh, that are used for critical systems. And it identifies certain uh, Chinese entities that are now on the prohibited list, all right? So, and but unlike 889, which, which had just a few months before it went into effect, this takes effect in 2028, all right? So we got a few years and implementing regulations are due out uh, I think it's by the end of 2025, early 2026. So, you know, hopefully, unlike with 889, Roger, we're going to see a much more deliberate rulemaking process that, you know, co that happens more slowly, has more opportunity for input, which we really didn't have much of that with 889. Yeah, and Jason, we're up on the break, but when we come back, I'll, I've got a follow-up question, and we'll continue the NDA discussion, but a question just about safe harbor. 889 versus this new section 1549. Okay. Yeah. My guest today is Jason Workmaster. He is a member at Miller Chevalier. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Jason Workmaster. He's a member at Miller Chevalier. And uh, Jason, we we're talking uh, last segment. We started covering the NDA and providing some legal sort of perspective on it. Um, and at the end of the segment, we were talking about Section 1549 of the uh, of the NDAA dealing with uh, the prohibition on uh, microchips or microprocessors, whatever the term is, right, uh, from right, China right, from right. certain Chinese right. companies. And you yeah. talked about the. Um, you know, the implementation date, we've got a few years for our 2028. Yeah. The other thing I want to ask yeah. you, is there any, you know, uh, how, how, how is Safe Harbor going to be a, a handled in this particular uh, situation? Do you think? I mean, I think we're, I think we're going to see. First of all, what is a Safe Harbor? Uh, well, I mean, if, if you know, because there's, there's always the chance, right, that you miss, you know, so you're going to go. Now, under these two prohibitions, you know, contractors are going to have to go and, you know, figure out, do they have a problem? You know, are they selling, you know, are, are, are you know, the, are these semiconductors embedded in what they're selling to the government? They're going to have to figure that out so they can make representations ultimately to the government that they're clean, they're not clean, you know, that they're, they comply, they don't comply. They're going to have to do all that kind of due diligence. 
And the question on the safe harbor issue, Roger, is, well, what if, what if, what if I don't, <laughs> what if I don't catch something, right? And so, so what, well, what's going to happen? So, you know, I would expect what we'll see on that subject is a lot like what we saw with 889, which is, you know, that you're going to be need to have to make a reasonable inquiry, right? And in the 889 regs, you know, did it? I thought did a pretty decent job as much as you can in this kind of situation to give some definition as to exactly, you know, what that is. So I, I would expect that we'll see a lot of, and I, so I expect that that kind of regime will, that we'll see with when, when the rules are promulgated here, I think it'll look very similar to what we've seen with 889. One other thing I think it's important to note on this, because, you know, what, what really, what really, you know, really caused consternation for the contract community with 889 was part B, which says we won't contract with you if you if use, you use this part B is different. This part B is not, we won't contract with you if you use the semiconductors. This part B is more focused, still more focused on what the government itself is buying. All right. So there, so, you know, it'll be interesting to see as well, you know, as the regs get promulgated, you know, there are some key differences in the statutory language, especially on part B in this new rule, in this new law, uh, versus what we saw with 889. Because it was really part B of 889 that drove most of the concern. Because it's like, my goodness, I, okay, I, I, I feel like I can get my arms around over what I'm selling to the government. But if I have to get my arms around everything I do, whether I'm selling it to the government or not, that's a very different challenge. Right. That's a, you know, if I'm a, you know, company does business in Europe and I've got all kinds of infrastructure there, what does that mean? All that kind of, it's kind of, yeah, raise some significant issues. So this one, so 1549 kind of does focus more on what the government's buying versus that it use does. prohibition. Yep. It does. Well, it does. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, we're going to keep this going, going on the NDAA. Uh, other sections of interest? Uh, I think so. Yeah. So let's, let's pop back to 803. Because, uh, you know, so, so back, again, back to Title Eight, which is mostly about, you know, which is about procurement. Um, so Section 803 talks about data requirements for commercial products for major weapons systems. All right. And so in it, in, you know, again, Roger, you know, I've had this conversation many times of the, you know, I don't know if schizophrenia is too strong a word to use within the government over whether it likes commercial items or whether it is more nervous about commercial items. This is a function of the government's nervousness about commercial items. So, uh, what this new law is it requires is going to require significantly more data uh, for commercial items, for commercial products for major weapon systems. So, I mean, there is a bit of a cabin. I mean, it's for commercial products for major weapon systems, which are defined terms. Uh, but for a, uh, you know, and if for those who are familiar with the kind of the commercial item world, you know, if you, if you have gotten a commercial, you know, the government will issue a commercial item determination. We call that a CID. All right. Well, now under this new law, for a subsystem component or a spare part that is proposed as commercial, but there's no existing CID. If the offeror sells a comparable commercial product, all right, so they're going in, here's my commercial product for the major weapon system, I don't have a CID yet, they're going to have to provide an analysis and identification of the comparable commercial product that the offeror sells to the general public. All right, so they're going to have to give this. They're going to have to do their do the homework in advance to make the case. Okay, here's what I'm going to sell to you. Here's my comparable commercial product, and here let me explain to you, you know, how that adds up to what I'm selling to you falls within the definition of a commercial product 
recognizing Rogers, you know, that that definition includes the of a type language that we've discussed many times, right? So in order to be a commercial product, you don't literally have to have sold it commercially. It's sufficient that it be of a type of something that's sold commercially. So if you've, but so if you sold something like similar yourself, you're going to have to give the government that write up. You're going to have to provide a comparison to serve as the basis of the of a type assertion of the physical characteristics and the functionality. Uh, and you're going to have to do that right out of the box before the government even asks. You know, this is going to be a requirement. Well, what if you don't sell a comparable product commercially? Well, then you're going to have to tell the government, you're going to have to give a written notice that, hey, I don't sell a comparable commercial product. And you're going to have to provide a comparison necessary to serve as the basis of the other type assertion, uh, et cetera, et cetera, of, of the physical characteristics and functionality, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, if, so if you're selling commercial products in support of major weapon systems, if you sell a similar commercial product, you're going to have some paperwork that you're going to have to fill out to demonstrate, here's why, you know, my thing I'm selling you meets commerciality. And if you don't sell something comparable commercial, you're going to have to let them know that. And you're going to have to provide that analysis, uh, right, again, right out of the box on why they should make the determination that what you're selling does meet the definition. So my question is why? why? Why the new sort of requirements? Is there a concern about the price that's being paid for a, quote, commercial item versus something that's bought under a different basis? Uh, you know, why? I think is... that's it. I think that's I, 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 I am convinced that that's it. So on the price reasonableness point, Roger, so what it also adds on price reasonableness is that the, the contractor has to either provide to the contracting officer or give access to the contracting officer to a representative sample of the before prices paid and the terms and conditions of the of the prior sales, or, or a representative sample of the prices paid for the same or similar commercial products sold under different terms and conditions and the terms and conditions of those sales. I think what you just said is what really is driving all this because nine times out of 10, the commercial item determination itself is really easy. I mean, determining whether something, you know, falls within the definite, I mean, there are some tough cases where things kind of, you know, fall into a gray area. It's, it's not clear. Do they meet the definition? Do they not? But for the most part, you know, if you're talking about soft, you know, software that has some kind of, you know, are even arguably a, a commercial application, that's pretty easy to say that I meet the, the commerciality definition. Where it gets tricky is on the price. And, yeah. you know, how do I demonstrate price reasonableness? And I think that's really what's driving this. Right. I think it's historically always like DOD wants to combine, you know, put price or somehow in some way price reasonableness inside the commercial item definition in a certain right to try to, yeah, I, I, that's, I mean, I. It, no, it, I mean, we can have a long, I mean, you know, you know it, it did strike me on this particular, on this particular section, section 803, you know, it does strike me. I mean, it's, it's, it's a similar concept to like the old CSP form, right? Yeah. I mean, you're, you're yeah. going to, you're going to say, here's the prices I sold this stuff at before. And uh, right. here's my terms of condition. I mean, it's, it's similar to that kind of construct. Yeah. Um, okay. We got about um, a minute left. Do you want to name a section and maybe we'll come back and talk about it? <laughs> well, the only other one I would note, you know, and, and this is really not because it's if so, I think it's, it's a critical significance, but it's just kind of a, a sign of the times. You know, we, we, we talk a lot about, you know, in government contracting over the last few years, you know, there's been a number of you know, clauses that have been implemented pursuant to executive orders. 
and you know and something that that uh, and it's, it's something that comes up you know every time that happens oh well there's a new executive order now there's this new clause do i get compensated because i'm you know gotta you know there's this new executive order so you know there's now section 805 uh, of the NDAA uh, treatment of certain clauses implementing executive orders uh, that says the unilateral insertion of a covered clause into an existing con DOD contract order or other transaction shall be treated as a change. All right. So, you know, it takes, to the extent there was any fuzz on that issue, Roger, which I really don't think there probably was, uh, but to the extent that there was, you know, this is clear statutory authority that, you know, when you're getting a new clause put into your contract, because of something that's come out of the White House, it's going to be a change that's compensable. Okay. Um, that's interesting. Yeah. I know you can think about all kinds of like the COVID mandate, other things, right? At the end of the oh, day. Yeah. That, that, yeah, oh, yeah. The vaccine mandate kind of things. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, okay. Jason, so when we come back, I know you want to talk about some other litigation, particularly maybe a, case, a cost reimbursement case. Um, sure. Yeah, that we're getting down in the boiler room, but that's what we do on this show. My guest today is Jason Workmaster. He's a member at Miller Chevalier. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Jason Workmaster, who is a member at Miller Chevalier. And hey, Jason, before we talk about this Raytheon case and the cost reimbursement, you know, um, implications, I guess, for lobbying costs or whatever, um, you'll, you'll, you'll explain it to me. Um, let's cover one more thing. I think that was, um, uh, with regard to the, yeah, I guess in the NDA and it's, it's sort of the codification of the fed ramp process and yeah. some of the yeah. other additions to it. Can you talk a little bit about that? Cause that's a pretty big yeah. deal too. Yeah. You know, so, you know, fed ramp, uh, you know, for, for, you know, the, the approved kind of cloud providers, uh, you know, it's been around FedRAMP's been, you know, it's been housed within GSA for, you know, over a decade now, but it, it, you know, it was, it, it didn't have kind of a, you know, a statutory predicate, right? So, so Congress now in the, uh, FedRAMP in 56, this is 50, section 5921 out of the NDAA, uh, now has passed the FedRAMP Authorization Act as within the NDAA itself, and it codifies, so it gives a statutory basis, uh, for the FedRAMP, uh, program. And, you know, the goal is to ensure, you know, a government-wide consistent approach to security assessments uh, and the certification of, of cloud products uh, and services. And it, it establishes a statutory presumption of adequacy across agencies. So, again, I mean, I think the, 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 the headline from it is not so much that I think things are tremendously changing substantively, it just you know, gives Congress's stamp of approval to a lot of what, you know, GSA has already been doing. Now, it does create something called a Federal Secure Cloud Advisory Committee, uh, which is going to have, you know, industry, which is going to have reps from cloud service providers on it, uh, which is, and that, I find that interesting, you know, that there's going to be now this, you know, there is an effort, you know, co to, co you know, have the, you know, the government coordinating, you know, in a congressionally established advisory committee, uh, on these issues, and you know, I, I think that'll be an interest. You know, be interesting to see what comes out of that committee uh, over time. So, is that if that is that a federal advisory committee act? So they're going to have to have public. Their meetings will be public, announced, and transcript, and all that stuff, or what? I would, I would think. I haven't dug into that, Roger, but I would think so. I mean, I can't. Yeah. I, I cannot imagine. You know, there being something. You know, that this would you know all take place behind. 
right. uh, closed right. doors. I mean, it's just right. going to be contrary to the whole point of, of setting it up. You know, and, yeah. and you know, the other thing that also is going to be interesting, I mean, we always talk about, you know, what's going on with CMMC, you know, how this, how this relates to, you know, now that we have congressional authorization on FedRAMP, what does this do with what's going on with CMMC? What does this do with the perennial question of what, you know, what, what do we do with all that CUI that's out there? So, I mean, it, it, all of that stuff, of course, Congress has not yet resolved. Right. All right. Yeah, it's interesting how that, how that all shakes out. And I guess GSA is in the midst of, or they're seeking like nominations for the, that advisory committee. So we'll see how that shakes out. Um, so, you know, we got, two or three minutes left here. And uh, I wanted to get to this, um, you know, cost reimbursement case. I know it's, it is down in the boiler room, but you know, a boiler room is where, you know, um, uh, or you could say it's the sausage is made. It's also where <laughs> money gets money gets spent or it doesn't get spent. Right. Um, yeah. Or yeah. it creates the rules around that. So tell us a little bit about this case. Yeah, and, and you know, just this kind of brings us kind of in a certain sense, full circle back to AC where we started with, ACLR, because this case is all about keeping track of costs, right? And if, you know, if depending on how ACLR comes out, you know, these, these cost reimbursement cases might become relevant to commercial item contractors. But, you know, so, you know, but if you currently, you know, if you have a cost reimbursement contract where, you know, you, you, you're performing work for the government and the deal is you get paid your incurred cost, of course, you know, you, you got to keep track of your costs and, you're, and you are in that world subject to the FAR uh, part 31 cost principles that say these costs are allowable, identify certain costs as ex- as unallowable. If if a cost is, is is expressly unallowable under FAR Part 31 and you charge for it anyway, you could be subject to penalties. So right. this case, this Raytheon case involved uh, two types of costs, uh, lobbying costs uh, and also some court, some uh, uh, corporate development uh, costs. Let's talk about the lobbying uh, costs. So, you know, the, so, you know, these folks, these are salaried employees. So again, think about, you know, we're talking about ACLR. Right. These are, you know, these are salaried folks. They're, 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 and you know, and these salaried folks, you know, their, their um, work week, their salary is predicated on 40 hours, you know, a week. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, the lot folks in the lobbying department, you know, during the normal working hours, you know, if they did something, you know, because lobbying, express lobby, you know, these, so these are folks in the lobbying department. Lobbying itself is an unallowable cost. Yep. yep. But that doesn't mean that, but that doesn't mean that everything that every person in the lobbying department is doing every day is unallowable. A lot, if it's, as long as it's not lobbying, it may very right. well be allowed, right? So they record their time during the normal workday when they're doing something unallowable, they record it and it is not charged. All right, there is a decrement made to what is charged the government. But if they go like out after hours to like something that's lobbying function, they don't they don't capture that time because the thought is like, well, look, that's outside of work hours. My salary is based on work is, is based on normal work hours. So if it's outside of normal work hours, I'm not being paid for that anyway. And so you know, it's not being charged to the government. Normal standard kind of cost accounting practice. Well, the Federal Circuit, you know, the, so the Armed Services Board of Contract Appeals gets this case. And they say, yep, you know, that, that's a standard, reasonable approach to, you know, making sure the government's not getting overcharged. All good. Goes up to the Federal Circuit and the Federal Circuit says, well, you, well, you know, it's, um, you know, these people are salaried. So whether it's during the day or at night, 
we got to make sure that there's that, that any time is being captured, no matter when it is, whether it's and, and, and so the federal circuit said all of that time needed to be captured. And, and if you didn't capture it, you were charging unallowable cost to the government and the government's entitled. It sounded like under the opinion, Roger, not only to get that cost back, but because it's expressly unallowable lobbying activity, a penalty gets put on top of it. So that, you know, for salaried employees, you know, my view of that, my view of that decision is that the, the, the court has now created kind of an apples and oranges problem. You've got, you know, these folks' salaries, which are predicated on a normal kind of 40-hour work week, you know, stuff they're doing after hours, you know, not, not on company time. The notion that that has to be decremented from what's being charged to the government, it, again, it's an apples and oranges problem because what's being charged to the government is predicated on the normal 40-hour work week. So, you know, I, I think that's problematic. Uh, you know, it's, it, you know, that case, you know, has come down from the federal circuit. Um, you know, it could be. I'm trying to understand the logic of it, though, too, because it's like, wouldn't it just mean that those hours are added to your work week and you, you're not getting you're reimbursed not getting paid for them anymore? anymore. These, yeah, no, so you wouldn't be subtracting. Are... No, these people. No, these 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 people are not being compensated more for this after-hours work. So, right. you know, right. it, it was it, so it, it it's not. Uh, I, I think it's a bad decision. Uh, you know, but it you know it's 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 it's. So we'll see how this new we'll see how the ACLR case comes out. This case, you know, this case with the federal circuit did come down on the side of, you know, what I think is a pretty draconian view, uh, an an unrealistic view that doesn't kind of take into account. You know the practical realities of of how you know contractors work. It's unilaterally ex- expanding the work week for employees, it, right? At the end it, of the day, it's doing it's doing that, and it's it's doing that, and it's and it's a bit of a head scratcher. If this case stands, um, you know, it, what does it mean? Does it mean that you know everybody at a company that might be doing something that could possibly involve unallowable cost? needs to track their get needs to track their time like a lawyer does that doesn't i mean you talk about running you, you talk about increasing costs roger i mean right. everybody is down right. to the do they have to track in quarters of an hour is tenths of an hour? i mean it opens up you know of can of worms that leads nowhere great i think for anybody and yeah. you know i think it's the kind of thing that the federal circuit just didn't for whatever reason just didn't grasp yeah well Interesting stuff, Jason, and we've got to wrap up. So I want to thank right. my guest today, Jason Workmaster. He's a member at Miller Chevalier. I'm Roger Waldron, and you've been listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.